Hey Fresh Capital listeners, Merry Christmas. To round off the year, Albert and I are discussing Amazon's retail business in a timely nod to the holiday shopping season. I had a lot of fun investigating for this episode how Amazon deliveries go from website to our doors. So stick around for that anecdote. We hope you get a chance to relax over this period and we're glad to be part of your week as you get a moment between family and friends. If you liked an episode, please let your friends and family know about us. It really helps us out. Talking companies and investing is also a great way to exercise the knowledge you pick up as you follow the pod. As always, listen and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week, we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn about companies and investing. My name is Dan, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Albert, and this is coming out on Boxing Day, so Merry Christmas to everyone who celebrates it. Albert, how are you going to be spending your Christmas? Yeah, Dan, I am in uh, Canberra visiting my parents. Um, I don't know how much of uh, that day will be spent unboxing because I've actually been terrible and haven't really gotten many Christmas presents. I've actually been quite lazy, so we'll see. We'll see. How about you? How are you? I'm well. I came in late to this recording session because I'm preparing Christmas lunch or part of Christmas lunch. So I was, um, and apologies to our vegetarian friends listening in, but I was finger deep into some uh, baby back ribs trying to get off the membrane on the back part of it. The most annoying thing ever to do. Um, so I thought I could get that done in like 15 minutes and it'll take me like 25. So I've, I've come a bit late to this one. I think that's, I don't think that was anything I've ever expected to come out of your mouth, like finger deep in ribs, <laughs> playing around, um, trying to get a membrane off. Correct. Maybe when we do uh, a medical company, we can dive into some of that stuff. I, I find it actually kind of fascinating and I'm a big, uh, I'm a big cooker. I really like cooking, um, Christmas is probably one of the few times now that, you know, I can really get into a long dish. Otherwise, you know, I'm just making food for my dinner every week and I don't want to spend hours and hours doing that sort of stuff. Nice. Very exciting. I actually um, was told yesterday, someone asked me if I could see on Spotify um, where people skip on a podcast because they're like, I actually skip all this like intro chat that you and Dan do. (laughs) (laughs) They're missing out, but I mean, that's up to you then. <laughs> Let's get into today's company, Albert. I think we, I mean, you in particular, you wanted to save this one for the end of year sort of special, and this is obviously the episode about Amazon. Albert, do you want to kick us off? Tell us a little bit about Amazon. Give us the overview. Yeah, this is exciting. I think we've done all the Fang companies or, or Manga, as they're called now, um, with Facebook's rebrand, except for Amazon. And Amazon, such a behemoth of a business. Um, there's no way we can cover them all in this episode. So I think today we're really just narrowing scope down to um, their retail business. But, you know, I'm sure everyone knows Amazon, one of the world's largest tech companies. You probably either used Amazon, bought something from Amazon, um, subscribed to their content streaming platform, um, used someone else's Amazon Prime account. Um, we're really focused today on their retail business, which is historically where Amazon started, uh, where they started as an online reseller of books, like a book marketplace, 
But now they've really expanded as, as a category leader in the space, selling a range of different products, including books, homewares, electronics, which they also manufacture um, through a range of different products. Um, we've kind of touched upon some of those products in previous episodes, like our Roku episode. Uh, they sell beauty products, appliances, and so forth. They actually don't categorize their business into retail specifically, Dan, when you go through um, the annual reports. And if anyone who's listening wants to go through Amazon's annual report or 10K, they refer to it as consumer, which really covers everything they do from a, a business to consumer company, You know, including retail, which is what we're going to talk about, their content creation business, um, et cetera. But really, again, today we're really focused on retail. Yeah, and there's a reason we're focusing on retail. Uh, one is, you know, we try and keep these episodes to 40, 50 minutes, so we want to keep it tight. But the other is it, it is the main game with Amazon. It's quite easy with some of these huge companies to get distracted by what are otherwise incredibly large businesses. Like Amazon Prime in of itself is a business. Uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, that in of itself is a different business. But... When you look at their overall overall revenue total, 83% of it is retail related. Uh, so that is the main game. And then you've got the cloud services with uh, AWS being about 12%. Um, and then they've got advertising services, credit cards, other stuff at about 6%. So really, it, it breaks down, but the retail related revenue um, is 83%. So that's why we're going to talk about that one. Interestingly enough, when we think of Amazon, it is slowly rolling out to Australia. I think we we know of it as such a large company because, you know, American exceptionalism, we sort of know about everything that's big in America. Only 27% of Amazon's non-AWS sales uh, were international. So that's led by Germany, United Kingdom, and Japan. Uh, but as I'm particularly keen to get into about the Australian experience, Amazon is, is a powerhouse in America, but not yet uh, a powerhouse throughout the world. And I think a way to differentiate that is if you look at a, a company like Alibaba, they, they are much more international in the sense that they've gone into Southeast Asia with uh, some subsidiaries uh, and really picking up market share there. So a little bit of different strategy there with, with Amazon. But before we get in too deep, Albert, do we want to do some quick hits? Yeah, absolutely. I guess this this works out really well following what you've just said about the UK and Germany. Um, Amazon actually entered both those markets in the late 90s through two um, acquisitions of two other book companies, Book Pages in the UK um, and Telebook in Germany. And both those businesses then became Amazon UK and Amazon Germany. So when you talk about how mature Amazon is as a business, particularly a retail business in those markets, it's really because... Uh, they enter those markets simultaneously on the same date, actually, um, in the late 90s. One of my quick hits relates to AWS, so their cloud services. And it's just interesting to think of how Amazon as a business is now so big that their competitors actually use Amazon services themselves just because they're, they're naturally really well attuned to the business needs of competitors like Target uh, like Officeworks and Kmart, all of these sort of being uh, Australian brands um, because they've just sort of selected them as their cloud supplier over Microsoft Azure. Um, and, you know, apparently it makes their websites more reliable, more responsive and are 90% cheaper to run than what, 
you know, these big retailers had cobbled together themselves. So we're not going to talk about AWS, but just interesting to think um, how so many of Amazon's current competitors are relying on their web servers to, to function. Yeah, Amazon have got a good track record of diversifying what they do away from their retail business. You just talked about AWS. Um, I guess my last quick hit is they own about 20% of Rivian, uh, which is an electric vehicle company that recently went public. And Rivian and Amazon have a very interesting relationship where Rivian have an exclusive license to supply Amazon with vehicles. So Rivian actually went public just on this deal with Amazon. Um, which is crazy because they hadn't generated any revenue. They just had an exclusive license. Well, Albert, let's get into the main game, which is Amazon. Um, usually we, we talk about the market, but I think we both looked at this and we said most people know what Amazon is. It's a delivery service. It's a marketplace uh, where you can buy things that gets delivered to you. Let's Let's take a step back. And we did some simple sprouts about strategy beforehand. Let's talk about Amazon more holistically as a business, uh, and we've done a we've done a simple sprout on flywheels as well. Do you want to talk to us, Albert, about the Amazon flywheel? Like a really classic, you know, if you're an MBA business student, you'd look at Amazon as a case example, and this would be one of the first things that you learn in the lesson. How does that look? How would we explain that to the listeners? Yeah, let's um, we'll we'll put a copy of this or link it in our show notes. But before I jump into um, the Amazon flywheel, I really want to emphasize that Jeff Bezos, who is now like the former CEO um, of Amazon, uh, really is customer obsessed and focused. And he talks about customer centricity and his obsession with fulfilling the needs of the customer as one of the core tenets to what Amazon does. And this is honestly like a no-brainer. If you run any sort of business that has a customer or relies on particular customers, which every business does, you, of course, want to optimize for the best customer experience. But it's a very easy thing to say, very difficult thing to do. And Amazon really nail it with how obsessed they are with customers. So their flywheel really starts at this idea of customer experience. So I'm I'm going to start there. And if you have a really great customer experience, it can then drive a lot of traffic and when I talk about traffic, that means people either going into their physical stores because Amazon does have physical stores or going onto their website, which is their most popular way of attracting customers. If you get heaps of traffic to your website or to your store, you're going to get more sellers on your platform. So sellers being the people who sell through Amazon Marketplace, but Amazon also operate kind of a retail wholesale business where they buy and sell goods. They can attract more sellers and therefore leads to a better selection. That's kind of that first part of that flywheel. There's a second part of that flywheel, Dan, which is kind of internally looking at how Amazon operates. So as they get more people and as they grow, they can lower their cost structure. It's a classic uh, economies of scale play. As you grow and as Amazon grows, they can invest in more things that helps their business develop a lower cost structure. They can amortize the cost of different programs, warehousing, distribution, logistics, et cetera, across their entire business. They get better scale from their distribution centers, which then enables them to lower prices. Lower prices then leads to a better customer experience. And then that flywheel then drives more traffic. So you can really see how Amazon have built a growth machine that stems from having a really strong customer experience internally and then externally. 
Yeah, and I just wanted to illustrate what you're saying there a little bit further, Albert. So when we're talking about that lower cost structure, it's sort of like when you're a mum and pup store, you might be doing delivery same way Amazon's doing. You have to pay Albert, you know, minimum wage, let's say it's $20 an hour to slap stickers on every single package that goes out. Uh, if Albert does 100 packages in an hour, that means that you know the, the cost of that sticker application is $20 an hour or oh, $20 for 100 packages that go out every hour. Now, as you scale up, say you know the mom and pop store does really, really well, they say, let's replace Albert with a robot who puts on you know 1,000 stickers in an hour and now suddenly the cost of putting on stickers is 10 times less. That's what we mean by as businesses scale up, they've got more activity, they're handling more goods, they can invest in you know, an expensive robot that is probably more expensive than Albert's $20 an hour, but over a year, over two years, that price actually makes it worthwhile. It becomes cheaper in the long run. Um, and that's what Amazon does. That's what Walmart has made their business on is just scaling up, getting lower cost structures in, which means you can pass on lower prices to your consumers, better customer experience, more of them come through the door, the, the flywheel sort of keeps going. So it is really demonstrative of, I think, you know, it's it's a not a complex business model. And, and sometimes when we think of how businesses have to be good, we try and think about, well, they have to be complex to be different, unique, have an advantage over the competitors. Sometimes it's not complex at all. It's just making sure you execute in a way that you can deliver these uh, marginal benefits. Yeah, and Bezos has been quoted on this and asked about this a number of times. His strategy of being customer-obsessed isn't any different to Walmart's or Costco's strategy of being customer-obsessed. I'm sure if you asked both the CEOs of those companies whether they care about customers, they would absolutely say they do care about customers. But this comes out completely different in how they execute on that obsession and their care about customers. So let's talk a little bit more about the retail business, Albert. We've you know, basically skimmed over it at the start there, um, assuming that people have sort of dealt with Amazon before. And we have talked about e-commerce marketplaces several times over the pod. Um, but general overview of an e-commerce marketplace, Albert, I guess the classic example, the model was eBay and now Amazon has just sort of taken that to the next level. Yeah, I think there's probably two sides of the retail business. So the, the first side is really traditional retail, like Amazon buy and sell products from different customers. So the products that they offer uh, through their Amazon store are products that they've purchased from a you know wide range of vendors, suppliers, and then they resell those products. In addition to that, they host a marketplace business, which is probably the second layer of what Amazon retail looks like, which is products offered by third-party resellers who then use Amazon as a platform or a sales channel to sell products. So they're, they're analogous to a Costco or a Walmart or Coles and Woolworths, JB Hi-Fi, in one part of their business, and then another smaller part of their business, they're analogous to probably something like an eBay. Yeah. And this is where I think I want to pivot a little bit, Albert, and I've focused a lot of my research on what's happening with Amazon Australia because they've 
basically just set up. They started or they launched in December 2017. So it's been coming on, what, four years now. Um, and, and I really wanted to sort of underscore as simple as the business model is, there's a lot that goes on underneath the hood. So are you happy to dive into this now or you want to do a little bit more on e-commerce? No, let's, let's do it because I think that operationally what makes Amazon really successful is how well they perform from a logistics and distribution sense. Yeah. Um, so again, this is Australia-centric. Um, they launched in December 2017. Now they've got five fulfillment centres and 14 logistics sites around the country. If you're thinking of the population of Australia, about 25 million people, they offer 125 million products right now. So if everyone decided to buy five things from Amazon tomorrow, they would have just amount, just enough storage space to, to basically fulfill all of those orders. Um, they really have to scale up during peak times. Every retail business knows that the Christmas Boxing Day trade is the main game. Every retail business has a better Q4 than all of their other quarters. And in many cases, their Q4 is you know better than the other three quarters combined. Uh, so something to keep in mind with with Amazon, they're going gangbusters at the moment, and they have to actually hire a thousand extra seasonal workers to fulfill that sort of demand. So you think of Australian Post also have to bring on a whole bunch of workers during this period. Amazon is the same. So they've still got a whole bunch of workers. It's just in different areas of the business. Uh, so where they've replaced some of these workers is in having, um, in Australia or in the Southern Hemisphere rather, their first robotics fulfillment center. What that looks like is it's a huge warehouse, about 24 rugby league fields in, in length. That's their footprint. So it's absolutely huge. Um, it's around Western Sydney. Inside, you'll have 20 million items. All of those items are then categorized into about 37,000 yellow storage pods. It's sort of like, you know, if you ever uh, moved houses and you bought plastic tubs, it's sort of like those, uh, which they used to store things in. And then hundreds of robots will move around the facility and pick up from those storage pods the jewelry, the books, the electronics, the pantry items, toys, whatever, to then be delivered to human workers who do the packing for delivery. So that's how they really automate all these orders. So if you think if, if you go onto Amazon right now and you put, um, I don't know, a, a laptop charger in your shopping cart, you check out, you pay for it, within a couple of minutes, that order has gone to this fulfillment center to a robot who picks it up from a particular tub and then flings it across to uh, the delivery service. So that's how you can get so efficient at delivery that it creates a better service for me as a consumer because I know my delivery is coming quickly and I'm more likely to shop at Amazon again, just to tie in that flywheel we discussed before. It's actually, it's actually pretty crazy. I don't know if any of our listeners have ever worked in retailing um, or e-commerce, but generally for less mature businesses, as soon as you click buy on a website, that gets sent back to some database. Someone then on Excel is sending that order to their fulfillment center. So most for the most part, it's not automated or assigned in some way. And then someone from a store goes or someone from a fulfillment center goes to pick it up. 
And so the fact that they've kind of automated all of this process is amazing. And it's a no-brainer to think, let's use robots because, you know, they can work infinitely, you know, they're much faster, more efficient. I, I think what I really want to call out here is it takes a lot of expertise, logistics expertise and warehousing expertise, to amass a production that can do both jewellery and a TV. Like warehousing jewellery and warehousing TV. Well, I bought sour worms from Amazon the other day. Warehousing sour worms and warehousing a TV are two completely types of different types of warehouses. And having robots come and pick those two things up are completely different things. You can't just use a robot to pick up a TV and use exactly the same one to pick up jewellery and sour worms because they're completely different packaging. Handling needs are different. So the fact that Amazon has done this operationally is, is incredible. I don't think many people really appreciate the expertise that goes into Amazon's operations. Mm. And, and this goes to the point about the lower cost structures. When you're at the size of Amazon and you're creating warehouses, well, actually, I'll take a step back. When you're a mum and pop store, you know, you're using lots of manual labor and that's cost intensive to a certain point. When you scale up to being, you know, a larger business than that, say you're still like a national uh, brand, a national company, you're still probably at the size that you're buying um, manufacturing or machinery rather, sort of not custom. It's pro- it's still off the shelf. It's still thousands of dollars or whatever. I, maybe the analogy is say you're a, a bakery and you've got several stores, you're still buying a particular type of oven. Okay, and it's got particular quirks and whatever, and it suits your needs, but it's not custom. When you get to the Amazon level, where you've just got so much money, you're actually designing that oven for your particular needs and purposes. And it might be that, you know, it's going to be a particular shape so that in your particular warehouse, there's just optimum efficiency with having access to it. It's at a particular height, so your robots can slot in at just the right level. I know I'm mixing analogies here with this oven, but other things. But I, I, there was a, I, there's documentaries now of Amazon, and usually it gets skimmed over because it's just you know the um, B-roll film and the background as someone voices over. But if just take a second and look at the machinery and the robots and all the stuff happening in the background, all of that's custom made so that there's just absolute pure precision and perfection in taking something from shelf A to point B to, you know, worker C or something elsewhere. Like that level of efficiency is what makes it seconds, minutes, hours quicker than another fulfillment center. And that's what drives more customers into the door. And they could have never done it if they didn't start with manual-based processes because having observing people, and, you know, obviously Amazon gets a really bad rep for how they treat workers, but observing people in their warehousing and seeing how people do it have enabled them to build these machines and these robots to do this at scale. Anything else you want to hit on the execution part of their game, Albert? I think that's the warehousing part is and logistics part is one aspect to how efficient they are and that kind of internal part of the flywheel. The other thing that a lot of people gloss over when they're really assessing Amazon is how quickly they turn inventory over. So for any retail business, you, you have a business model where you buy products from a, a third party or a supplier and then you resell them at a higher price. And the difference between the price is your margin. But what's implicit in that is how long you hold an item for because if you hold it for a really long time, 
it's pretty unlikely you can sell it at the right price, which means you've then got to discount it. So Amazon have incredibly amazing inventory turnover due to how efficient, one, their choices of logistics are, but two, their data science capabilities underpin what they do and actually buy from different sellers. So as kind of comparisons, uh, from their latest annual report, Amazon have about 20 bill of inventory on their balance sheet, which represents about 17% of current assets for any other kind of accounting nerds out there. Um, Alibaba is a marketplace business, obviously no inventory on their balance sheet because they operate a completely different model. Costco and Walmart, who have a very similar business model to Amazon's retail business, has 43 and 50% of their balance sheet or their current assets is inventory. So the fact that Amazon have only 17% of their balance sheet as inventory it is crazy. It just shows how efficient they are actually turning inventory over. Yeah, and I mean, when we talk about some of the home players, uh, one of the reasons Kogan had sort of a bad, uh, I'm not going to say year, but probably a bad quarter when they posted their, their last results and they got hit a little bit in their share price, it was because of this very issue. It's because they expected during the pandemic for there to be much more consumption, people to continue their spending habits and buying their products. Guess what? Didn't happen. They got stuck with a whole bunch of inventory which they then had to discount, which then had storage costs they had to pay, which then prevented new goods from coming in, which then get stuck in port, and then you have to pay fees on having a product stuck in port. And just all around it, it creates biz- problems for your business and it creates costs that you have to then pay. For them to be that efficient for Amazon, it tells you that you know they've got a secret source somewhere and that's that's algorithms, that's data that they're just absolutely churning and cranking out to make sure they get the most efficient deliveries and logistic services they can get. Yeah, let's um let's zoom up on a more macro level and talk about kind of how Amazon is is winning as a business. Like you know, we've talked about logistically and how they operate. Like what are the things that strike you, Dan, when we look at Amazon and how they've grown to be the behemoth that they are? Well, I mean, to me as a customer, it's interesting to look at the Australian experience, which is it's actually been kind of slow adoption. I remember when they launched in 2017, so we would have just been finishing up Uni Albert, but the running meme or joke at the time was like, oh, all these stores are just going to, like they're going to be bust in the next two, three years because Amazon's coming. You know, why am I going to be using Kogan? Why am I going to use, why am I going to shop for books at Dimmicks or something? Surely all these stores are going under. And, you know, if you're out doing a Christmas shopping during this period, all of these companies are alive and well. And I think maybe I'm taking your question slightly the, the, a different direction, Albert, but that Amazon hasn't been flawless in executing and establishing in Australia. Um, analyst predictions were that by 2020, so the end of 2020, they were going to reach about $3.5 to $4 billion in sales in Australia and basically wipe out your JB Hi-Fi's, your Harvey Normans, uh, your super retail group, West Farmers. They're all meant to be dead to rights. Instead, they took in about $1.2 billion uh, at the end of 2020. So they basically did three to four times worse than what analysts thought they would do. Um, And part of that, I think, is slower adoption by Australians. We were having this discussion just before recording, Albert. 
think part of it is not necessarily having like a huge marketing campaign behind their drop into Australia. Um, I suspect there were some learning curves around distribution and logistics in Australia. We're a huge company, a huge country. There's problems with delivering over large areas compared to really compact population dense cities like the United States cities or in London, for instance. So I think all those problems really cause them to have probably not by design, but just a slower rollout. And it's now that we can see that they're starting to take that market share. So UBS, which is um, an investment house, did a survey and they found that 38% of shoppers purchased from Amazon uh, in 2020. And that was up from 25% in 2019, up from 22% in 2018. So you can see that there was a sort of a, a steady upward trajectory into 2018, 2019, but then it really kicked up in 2020 from 25 to 38%, probably because of the pandemic. But now I, I think that's going to stick and they're just going to build that market share from here. I actually don't even think it was a problem that they were really slow out of the gate. Like we just talked about how hard it is to do warehousing, to build logistics centers, to do distribution. We're an island country in Australia. Like for Amazon to come in and build all this infrastructure, that that takes time to then buy products and, and sell them, which means they've got to send products from other countries to Australia and house them at their distribution centers or buy products from countries within Australia and house them at distribution centers. That that takes time. Like this 24 field football center logistics uh, machine that you were talking about, Dan, like that probably took a year or two to build and actually set up and then fill with produce and, you know, machinery, et cetera. So the fact that Amazon took, you know, a few years to come out of the gate, that's probably, I think, best practice. The last thing you want to do as a business is invest billions of dollars into new market entry without testing the waters to see how consumers are going to react. And so the fact that Amazon started really slowly and tested the Amazon product in Australia is, is honestly technology best practice. But where do you see them going from here, Albert? So if we say that they've got a foothold in Australia specifically, and I like to use Australia as the example because honestly, if we zoom out, we look at Amazon as a business, it's a great business. They're very likely to be successful into the future. But let's try and f- throw a bit of a wrench in it. Let's put a bit of a, a spin on it. In Australia, how quickly do you see them gathering market share? I'm not asking, are they going to keep gathering market share? I think it's a question of how quickly. Yeah, it's a good question because Amazon historically has gained really strong market share through acquisitions. It's like to, to build out their UK and Germany business, they, they acquired those two businesses. To build out the grocery business, they acquired Whole Foods. You know, to build out a bunch of other businesses, Amazon have just constantly acquired, acquired, acquired. You know, we're not talking about content, but to help build out Amazon Studios, they, they bought Metro, which produces the James Bond films, uh, amongst other things. So I think there's appetite in Amazon to grow in Australia. But when you look at how you could grow, you've got two major entities, Coles and Woolworths, who you probably can't acquire because that, that's huge acquisitions. And I don't know whether um, the competition watchdog would enable that. I don't, I don't believe they would enable that. So that really leaves you as Amazon with much smaller scale acquisitions and there's no one really who fits the bill like iga which is an independent grocer 
really is too much of a long tail for Amazon to play. So I think they're going to go pretty slowly in terms of trying to build out a foothold that they have in a similar foothold to what they have in the US here in Australia, to be honest. So that's interesting because I think that's the difference if you look at the American experience compared to the Australian experience. I don't think of Amazon as a food retailer, whereas in America, I think it's very, very different. You can get your food delivered through Amazon. Um, you know, here, if we just look at some of the numbers, if they were to reach that $4 billion mark, which investment analysts sort of hope they were going to reach, that's only 1% of total retail sales in Australia or 2% of non-food retail. Do you, do you think that food ultimately is where they're going to play in Australia as well? I, th- I think yes, um, because if Amazon really wants to compete in Australia, you need to uh, adapt to Australian shopping habits. And Australian shopping habits now have really pushed uh, online e-commerce to most things except food. Like grocery stores is still bricks and mortar in Australia. But for the most part, other consumer goods, clothing, beauty, healthcare, uh, most appliances, small electronic goods, a lot of people do buy online and that's probably going to increase due to COVID. But groceries... That, that very much still is a physical experience for Australians. What do you want to pivot to next, Albert? What do you want to talk about? Yeah, so I think we've talked a lot about Amazon, how it's going, where its retail business is going. I think what is really interesting and I think something we need to talk about is that split between physical and online, which we haven't yet talked about. And not necessarily in Australia. They've got 611 physical stores in America seven internationally, I guess for comparison, Walmart has about 5,000 stores. Like where do you see Amazon starting to blend physical and digital? Well, I remember several years ago, the sort of hype around the Amazon store where you put, you know, lollies, put chips, put apples, whatever into your basket, and then you just walk out the door because, you know, it's it's like a digitized physical space where it recognizes what you've taken off the shelf your shopping bag or whatever is linked to your amazon prime account and just charges you automatically so very frictionless shopping experience um i don't see them necessarily going into the physical space unless as you were talking about albert it's an acquisition um because otherwise to to me it's very much backwards looking you're retrofitting a traditional way of doing something, a traditional activity like going to the supermarket and shopping. And yes, you're making it better. You're making it a frictionless experience. You're making it quicker. You're making it you know, futuristic. But at the end of the day, you're tethered to, you know, supermarkets have got aisles and you've got, you know, these goods and these aisles and these goods and other aisles. And you probably don't stock certain things because it takes up too much space and it's not efficient. Uh, to do so, I think there's just so much progress in continuing with the digital marketplace uh, rather than trying to retrofit old ways of doing things in a digital way because the likelihood that that's the most efficient way of doing something, which is how Amazon operates, I think is unlikely. Yeah, that, that's interesting. It makes me wonder why they're investing in physical stores. Like they've gone from you know zero to 600 in the last couple of years. I think, is it to drive greater market share and presence 
against some of these competitors who've started from physical and moving back into digital, moving into digital, uh, sorry, and whether you see that trend happening in Australia eventually. Like I personally don't think I would ever see an Amazon store in Australia. I just don't think we're big enough market size for Amazon to have a physical presence in Australia. But, you know, they're all cards on the table. If Amazon really do penetrate the market here in the same way they have in the US, like they, they could have a physical presence. Yeah, I think what I'd need to answer, and I, I don't know the answer, which is why I'm, I'm just sort of posing the question is, what you'd need to answer I think, to understand if Amazon is trying to go into physical stores is how they view themselves as a future company. And I say that as a point of comparison to, say, Meta or Facebook, which has quite clearly put a stake in the ground and said, you know, we're a cash-rich business who can do, do basically anything with this mountain of money we've got. And we're deciding to play in the metaverse. Like your digital personality, digital infrastructure, your digital life is going to be through us, stake in the ground. Apple to a certain extent, I think there's probably going to be a redefining of Apple over the next several years, but very much they've defined themselves as being like the ultimate home product, whether that be you know your iPhone, which you use, your Mac computers that you use, uh, all the other accessories and whatnot, which you kid out your house with, your headphones or whatever, you know, it's your home technology service provider. Amazon, I'm still not sure like where their stake in the ground is because as you say, are they just the delivery service or are they something more? And I think if they're going to physical stores, that's something more because now you're providing a real experience for your customers, a physical area which they can go into and associate with your brand. And that's very different from a website which you just log on to occasionally browse and buy things. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're already more than a delivery service. So, you know, they're, not we're talking about them, but they've got content, they've got AWS, they've got their artificial intelligence business, they've got, they've got Rivian. Like, but but how does it all merge together? That's like, because to me, it's just, it's very disparate. It's just, different things. And I remember we had that Facebook episode where I was looking at their VR goggles, WhatsApp, you know, all these different acquisitions or whatever, and didn't fit together until they said metaverse. That's what we want to be doing. And then you could start drawing the links. I don't know how you draw the links between Amazon Prime as like a, as, as content producing, Amazon Web Services and logistics delivery like there's shades of lines but nothing concrete yeah I, I don't necessarily see that as a huge problem though like if when people start to unpeel facebook you know they acquired oculus in like what 2015 2016 so they, they probably knew where they wanted to go as a business they just hadn't singled signaled it yet to the market you know amazon as an example they bought imbd in like 2000 or 1999 uh in 1998 they bought imbd which is you know that famous um movie aggregator that everyone likes to go into and this is well before they they built a content business and now amazon and bezos as well have started to build together a content business around what they own uh imbd the studios that they're building amazon prime Huffington Post, not Huffington Post, Washington Post, sorry. Um, what's the streaming service that um, 
Bezos owns Twitch or is it Discord? Yeah. No, I think it's Twitch. Yeah. So, um, you know, you can start to see even though when you look at these acquisitions in isolation, what these, you know, could cause um, potential worries or challenges about how Amazon spends its cash. But for the most part, Amazon and Jeff Bezos is highly regarded as like one of the best capital allocators in the world. And, you know, he, he they've got absolutely good reasons for that. Like another example is they bought Wicker this year. Wicker is like the um, private messaging service that a lot of politicians use. And I think t- when Turnbull was um, prime minister, he came under scrutiny for using Wicker for parliamentary um, communications because that couldn't be FOI'd. But that's just an example of the kind of things Amazon's looking to buy uh, because they've got, I guess, a very long-term future for themselves. And funnily enough, they they own Bebo, which is, I guess, a throwback. (laughs) That is a throwback. Um, Before we wrap up, Albert, do you want to do a quick hit on some competitors? Yeah, so really they've got a giant competitor set given where Amazon plays I've really narrowed their competitor set for this episode into three different competitors who we've talked about. Um, Alibaba, who really just operate a marketplace-only business. Costco and Walmart, who operate predominantly kind of a retail wholesale business. Um, And I've just pulled a few comps here. Um, Amazon here trading at 4.6 sales, which, you know, I think is a, a pretty great valuation considering where Amazon is. They're also growing at close to 40% year on year. So, you know, we don't talk about valuation a lot on this podcast, but I think this is an incredible price for what this business is. Um, Alibaba trading about 3.9x sales and Costco trading at 2x sales. But I think that's probably a lot more appropriate for Costco to trade at a lower multiple because it just buys and sells shit. I think the interesting thing for me, uh, again, from the speaking from the Australian experience, is we talk sometimes about the long tail of competitors. So that's to say that sometimes where you're a behemoth like an Amazon or an Apple or a Facebook, you know, you do have peers who are like size and you, but more often than not, you're the incumbent with like, you know, 50, 60% market share. And then you've got thousands of other businesses, each with, you know, 1%, 5%, 3% market share. And the question is, like, how do you go about competing with that set? Do you really want to monopolize that market share? The answer is probably not. So when I look at Australia, you know, is it enough that they can sort of coexist with your Kogans, with your JB Hi-Fi's, Big W's, that sort of competitor set? I think there's probably some market consolidation that's going to happen. Um Kogan has really differentiated themselves by being white label goods, tech for the most part, uh, and they're trying to get into other areas like we talked about on our episode where they've got like telecom cards, that sort of thing. But if I had to pick a competitor which I think it might lose out from the Amazon expansion, it's probably Kogan. Like I think the brick and mortar is like a JB Hi-Fi. They're, they're probably here to stay and we did our episode on them a long time ago but one of their big competitive advantages was you walk into a store and they have a reputation that every staff member you talk to can knowledgeably talk you through some of the products. And I think for their particular niche of tech, that's going to stay a competitive advantage, which Amazon can't really compete on. 
So I'd be interested how a Kogan, which is much more in the firing line for Amazon, how they're going to sort of innovate to get out of the way. All right, Albert, what's your verdict? Yeah, I mean, this is probably a no-brainer. I don't know many people who are, who are um, bearish on Amazon. I think they're a great business. They're obviously very cash flow positive. They're doing really well. They, they show that they can strip out a great amount of costs. Um, even if I zoom out and not just think about their retail business, um, they're making some really big moves in the content space. They're making some really big moves in the vehicle space, um, which we haven't yet talked about. But just quickly, they're obviously minority investment in Rivian. They acquired Zooks, which is an autonomous vehicle company. Um, they've done a lot of acquisitions in the past couple of years. Uh, I think Amazon wants it starts to signal to the market like Meta did what its long-term vision is, and it's probably built around AWS, considering the new AWS or the old AWS CEO is now CEO of Amazon. Uh, I think Amazon's going to be uh, a winner in this space. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. Amazon, fantastic business. It's one of the few tech stocks that we can talk about, Albert, which, as you say, are cash flow positive. Um, usually you'll tell me that it doesn't matter, profit's all made up. But there's something about seeing, you know, just money coming in and then turning a profit, which I think is nice in a tech business to see every once in a while. And not only that, but their, you know, efficiency, I think, is the takeaway of this episode. They're just becoming more and more efficient. So FY19, their operating margin was about 5.1%. Year after that, 5.9%. This year to date, it's about 6.4%. So that margin is just getting fatter and fatter, uh, which only signals good things for a business like Amazon. So again, yep, I'm bullish on them too. Yeah, and as they over-index more on AWS, that margin's going to only increase, right? At the moment, it's predominantly driven by the difference in the price that they acquire a good and the price that they sell a good. Exactly. All right, Albert, let's finish up there. A Merry Christmas again to everyone who's listening uh, on Boxing Day is when this one's going to come out. Uh, let us know what you did for your Christmas, what you want to hear for the next year ahead, where all is. I think uh, there's a little Spotify feature which has just been released which lets you rate our show. I'm going to try and fiddle with some settings. So if you if you can, give us five stars. Uh, we really appreciate it. That will be a nice little Christmas gift for us. Thanks again and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn how companies operate and how investing works. Just a reminder, all information contained in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, financial, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Fresh Capital are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any opinions expressed in the show are not recommendations or advice. Please consult a licensed financial professional before you jump in. As always, we look forward to seeing you next week. See ya!